How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this privilege and opportunity to gather together to study your word. We continue to pray for those in this congregation who are serving overseas, and we pray for them and for their families, that you would watch over them and keep them safe, and pray for the families, that you would give them the strength and perseverance to endure this time of waiting. Father, we continue to thank you for this nation, the freedoms that we have, the security that you provide for us, and we pray that you would continue to watch over our borders and keep us safe and secure from the uh, insidious attacks of terrorism. Now, Father, we know that the greatest way to protect this country is through the believers in this country for their spiritual growth, and we continue to pray that we might have the fortitude, the diligence, and the endurance to press on in our own spiritual growth. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this evening. Give us a better understanding of who we are and how you have designed us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So far in our study in Genesis chapter 2, we have come to the seventh verse of the second chapter, where we're studying about the creation and formation of man. There we're told that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed, into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul or a living being. Now, as we have gone through this, and we've studied the exegesis of this particular chapter and the details of this this section, and we have focused in on the origin of the soul, and then we have looked at the makeup of man. And last time... A couple of weeks ago, or I think it's been about three weeks since I had some vacation time, we looked at the issue that has been debated throughout the centuries on the makeup of man. And in this debate, the terms are trichotomy versus trichotomy versus dichotomy. Here they are on the overhead: trichotomy and dichotomy. Now, these terms relate to the idea of man being made up in two parts or three parts for trichotomy and two parts for dichotomy. Now, the way most of us were taught, we were taught that trichotomy emphasizes the fact that man is composed of a body, a human soul, and a human spirit. We've also been taught that in dichotomy, that basically means that man just has a human body and a human soul, because in spiritual death, the human spirit is not present. However, that is not how the term dichotomy is used in standard theology, as it's been expressed over the last 2,000 years. In traditional theology, dichotomy means that man is composed of two parts, a material part and an immaterial part. Now, I throw that in just so you have a proper education, and if you ever read a standard systematic theology, you'll know what the difference is. And because there are times when students start going into a seminary class and get confused because they've seen these words used in a particular way. Now, there's always been a debate between these two views. And as is his want, Pastor Theme came along in the 50s and said, well, let's cut the Gordian knot of theology here, and they're both true. Man is trichotomous, originally created. He's trichotomous after regeneration, and he's dichotomous in between. 
However, that doesn't address the uh, debate as it's normally uh, set up, and that that debate sees the immaterial part of man as being composed of various terms like the inner man, heart, soul, spirit, and a number of other terms that are used to describe the inner man as being uh, just a number of different terms relating to this immaterial part. And in some places, of course, terms like soul and spirit are used in ways that seem to be interchangeable. Now, the reason I point this out is because at some point, someone always starts reading in Genesis somewhere where uh, talks about the spirit of Pharaoh being uneasy. Well, does that mean Pharaoh was a believer because he had a spirit? No, it does not. These words, all of these words that are used to describe the immaterial part of man, are words that have generic meaning as well as technical meaning. And in many passages, words such as heart and soul and spirit are used in a non-technical sense to simply refer to the inner man, the immaterial part of man. However, we know that in some passages they are used in a technical sense and a technical distinction is set forth. And we have looked at these passages before. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. That's a clear indication that there is a distinction between soul and spirit, even though there may be a tremendous overlap in their function in the regenerate individual, in the believer. They have, they are distinct, and it's only the word of God that can bring out that distinction. Another passage that emphasizes this distinction is in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. So in both of those passages, Paul indicates a threefold distinction, body, soul, and spirit. However, we have to recognize that there are other passages where where there seems to be this overlap. But there's another passage I want to look at briefly, so let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 44. In talking about the body, Paul makes a comment about the physical body. He says, It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Now, we have seen in our study of this concept that that word natural is not the word phusis, which is the word related more to nature, but it is the word psychikos. P-S-Y-C-H-I-K-O-S. From the root word psyche meaning soul. So when Paul says it, that is the physical body that we're born with, is sown a natural body, he is saying it is sown a soulish body. That means that this body, this physical body that we have, is particularly designed to express the soul. Now we also know from our study of 1 Corinthians 2.14 that we are born a natural man. And that natural man is, again, a psychikos person or a soulish person. And a soulish person is a person who does not have a human spirit. We're born without a human spirit, and there needs to be an act of God called regeneration where we are made spiritually alive at the instant of salvation. Jude 19 also mistranslates that word psychikos is worldly. And in Jude 19, we're told that the worldly person, that is the psychikos or natural or unsaved person, uh, does not have a spirit, does not have the human spirit. So in 1 Corinthians 15.44, we're to- told that we have a physical 
body that's sown a natural or soulish body, but it is raised in resurrection a spiritual body. And Paul says there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So the body that you are born with, the physical body in time, has an affinity primarily to the soul. But the resurrection body has an affinity to the spirit, to the human spirit, and to the new position that we will have in heaven and in relationship to God. So the scriptures are clear that there is this distinction. However, as Lewis Berry Chafer in his Systematic Theology points out, in many cases the term soul and spirit can be used interchangeably because the writer of scripture is not emphasizing the distinction between the two. However, in some passages, when the writer does have a distinction in mind, then he will use them in a technical sense, where the soul refers to one part of man, the immaterial part of man, and the human spirit refers to another. So you can't just go through the Bible and say that every time you see the word soul, it refers to an unbeliever minus a human spirit, or that every time you see the word spirit, it automatically refers to the human spirit in this technical sense. Because in everyday language, people talk about the soul, the spirit. It will talk about the spirit of certain people have departed and they're unbelievers. That's in some passages in Psalms. That's not using it in a technical sense. So last time, we simply went through a look at dichotomy and trichotomy to understand the terminology and to show what the Bible teaches in relationship to the immaterial makeup of man. And with the conclusion last time, I was asking the question, what is the immaterial part of man comprised of? What makes up that immaterial part of man? The three parts of the individual, the human body, the soul, and the human spirit. Now, when we look at this, minus the human spirit, we have four basic components of the soul. Now, if you've hung around here long enough, you probably were taught, some of you I know were here back in the early 70s, you were taught that there were five or six parts to the soul that Adam was originally created with five parts to the soul, self-conscious, mentality, conscience, and volition, emotion, and the sin nature. Then, as time went by, you were taught that the sin nature really isn't housed in the soul. It is housed in the body. And then, when I came here about five years ago, I began to teach that emotion is not housed in the soul either, Emotion is housed in the body. It is not part of the soul. Now, when you start talking about emotion and where emotion is located, and you start saying that emotion is not in the soul, it's in the body, people start getting a little bit controversial over that. What's interesting is that I've run across literature since then from a number of different sources where this is not something new. This is something that a number of people have held over the years, that emotion is physically based. And just think about it. We use that terminology. What, what's the word we use for emotion? Feeling. How do you feel today? That's a physically based term. Now, that's not the only reason that I'm arguing for this position. I want to go through a couple of things. But we do have to raise the question, where is emotion located? And, and the question is important for a number of reasons. First of all, if emotion is in the soul rather than in the body, then an argument can be made for emotion being in God because the immaterial part of man is the image and likeness of God and reflects the nature and character of God. So if emotion is in the soul, then we would see emotion in some sense, in some analogous sense, and that is an important word that we have to understand here, and that is the word analogy. You see, knowledge about God in, in theology has been, has been defined as terms of one of three ways historically. The first is a word that is called univocal. Now, this gets a little complicated into some of the higher ethereal spheres of, of uh, philosophy, 
But univocal, let's just say it is a one-to-one, see there's that word uni, one-to-one correspondence. And that means that our knowledge is like God's knowledge. It equals God's knowledge. It's the same kind of knowledge. At the other end of the spectrum, you have the concept that our knowledge about God is equivocal. And that means there is no correspondence between our knowledge and God's knowledge. In Isaiah, God says, my my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. God is higher than us. In between, you have a term called analogy, that our knowledge is analogical to God's. That means there is a correspondence or a similarity, but it is not identical. See, if it's identical, then that limits God's knowledge. If it's equivocal, that means that with no correspondence, that means we really don't know anything about God at all. When God says something is red, uh, that has nothing to do with, with uh, what we think of as red. So we can't know anything about God or what he is saying. So neither univocal knowledge or equivocal knowledge has any value. The argument is what is the level of analogy here. So there's some level of similarity that we have to explore in order to understand this. Now, what I'm pointing out here is that we're going to go back to the Creator before we look at the creature. We have to look at the Creator and see if there is a basis for saying that God has emotion. Now, there's a number of passages that people tend to go to that think that God has emotion. You have passages that talk about the anger of God, that God is angry, or that God is, has, demonstrates wrath, or that God is a jealous God, or that God is a God of love. And they take all of these terms as terms of emotion. Now the question, though, that we must ask is, are these terms used in a literal manner, Or are they used in a figurative manner? Now, I've been in various discussions with different pastors because this is one of those things that you can get into a lot of discussion over at pastors' conferences. And not everybody agrees. And one thing I want to say up front is this is not a mark of whether or not somebody's a heretic or not. There are some very deep and very difficult issues to wade through in thinking your way through this material and just because somebody doesn't think that or thinks that God has emotion, in many ways when they when they express what they mean by that, they will qualify it extensively and say, Well, God certainly doesn't have emotion like we do. He certainly doesn't vacillate. He certainly isn't emotional. He certainly isn't going to go back and forth on a, on an issue. Uh it certainly isn't physically based. And after they've said all of that, I've said, So in what way then is it an emotion? How does that fit an emotion? So let's just look at this. Let's see how the Bible expresses some of this. Well, first, before we begin, let's look at what emotion is. Emotion is a response mechanism. It is a response mechanism. When you have certain emotions, they are a response to certain things that are going on in your thinking. They are a response to thought. They are a response to attitudes. And they are a response to beliefs. If I come running in here and you're a mother or a father and I tell you that your three-year-old child has just wandered out in 160, Highway 164 out there and a semi-truck has run over them, how do you feel? What are your emotions? If I come back in five minutes later and say, sorry, I'm wrong, that didn't happen at all, now how do you feel? You see, those emotions are the result of what you believe to be true. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. It it has to do with what's going on in the thinking of the soul. It's a response to certain attitudes in in the soul, and it's a response to certain beliefs. It's also affected by certain chemicals. You have hormones, you have... uh, all kinds of different things that can be going on inside the body. You can have, uh, you can be out e- exercising, and you have the rise of certain other chemicals, and they give you a sense of uh, euphoria. You have 
Uh, other times when we just wake up and we're tired physically, and so our mental state is depressed. All that's affected specifically by things going on in the body. So we have to recognize that emotions are responders to certain thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes in the soul, but they also have a certain physical orientation. In fact, one writer has stated very uh, clearly, succinctly, that when we believe something has happened or we have certain thoughts, think about that illustration where you just learn, or another illustration, you just are told that uh, there's been a major, a, a major problem at the company where you work and you're going to be laid off tomorrow. Now, how do you feel physically? When that happens, you hear bad news. Any, most of us have been told bad news at one time, and we know that there's a, an almost instantaneous visceral response. There is a feeling that we have been kicked in the gut. And so emotions often and usually produce profound visceral reactions. Now, the term visceral is a term that describes something as relating to or affecting the viscera or the internal organs. And it should be noted when we talk about this that many of the terms for emotions in both Hebrew and Greek relate to the viscera, the internal organs. In fact, there is no word, there is no word in Hebrew or Greek for emotion per se. You may have individual emotions mentioned, but you don't have a word for emotion as a category uh, per se. Well, you do have some interesting words used to describe some of these emotions. For example, in Greek, you have the word splotnon. Looks like this. S-P-L-A-N-C-H-N-O-N. When you have a gamma key together, that looks, that's really an N-C-H. Splanchnon. And splanchnon refers first and foremost in a literal sense to the kidneys. And it came to be used to refer to compassion. In much of the ancient world, the kidneys were the seat of something of the negative emotions. But in Greek thought, it was related to compassion and mercy. So often when you read in the New Testament to be merciful, it has the, it's a translation of the word splontinon. It's taking the concept of compassion and it's expressing it through the terms of the viscera or the internal organs. Splanchnon, it's and its verb splachnizomai, literally means to be moved in one's bowels. Not to have a bowel movement, but to be moved in your bowels. Okay, I just want to make sure you are awake. It's a term for compassion that you feel something so deeply and profoundly that you are, you feel it in your gut. Another word that is used come in the Hebrew is the word kilia which has the same idea in the Hebrew, K-I-L-Y-A-H, and this refers to the kidneys. In the King James translation, it would sometimes translate it the reins. And this was a word that is sometimes translated in your English translation as thought or mind, but it is better understood as the inner person or emotions. For example, Jeremiah 11:20, 11, 11 verse 20 states, "But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings—that's how it's translated in the New American Standard—who tries the feelings." And the word there for feelings is the kidneys, kilia. Who tries the feelings and the heart? And heart, of course, is another physical organ that is used to represent the totality of the immaterial person. Sometimes heart has a primary sense of the mentality. In a few places it, can, it has the idea of emotion. In a couple of other places it has the idea of volition. But as a concept, heart primarily is looking at the center of something. It's looking at the inner man, the soul as a whole, emphasizing one or more of the various characteristics of the soul. And usually that's the mentality. Now, 
Jeremiah 17.10 uses the word Kilia in the same sense. The Lord searches the heart. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. And there the word translated mind is Kilia again. I test the emotions, the feelings. So there it has the idea of the inner part of man. Now, what we've seen so far is that Emotion is a response mechanism that God has put into the human being. It's a response to what goes on in the mentality or the thinking of the soul. It is seen or experienced to be very physical. We feel these th- these emotions. When you get angry, you feel it. Your blood pressure goes up. Uh, we'll see another example of this in just a minute of, how, of a physical expression of anger. Now, if this is physical, we know that this doesn't relate to God at all. That's, this is a position I'm making. That is, if emotions are not, if God doesn't have emotion, and if emotions are not in the soul but they're in the human body, then it doesn't indicate that God necessarily has emotion in any sense the way we do or have emotion at all. Now, there are some other problems with this that are, get more profound when we talk about the use of language in the Bible. So I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, verse 9. This is an episode that is familiar to most of you, the episode of the golden calf. While Moses has been up on Mount Sinai receiving the revelation of the Mosaic law, the people became bored. In verse 1 we read, Now the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, and they gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. Notice this is democracy in action. The majority wanted him to make an idol, but they were wrong. So just because the majority makes a decision doesn't mean they're right. Oftentimes I get a little bit scared when I'm on the same side as the majority, because the majority is usually wrong. Make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron begins to construct an idol, and they begin to worship the idol, and they, they're having a, an orgy down by this idol because they're involved in the uh, fertility worship. And as a result of this, the noise gets up to up the mountain, and the Lord and Moses hear it. In verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go get down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now look at how the Lord expresses himself to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore... Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. Now, the New American Standard translates them that, Let me alone that my anger may burn against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. So what we have here is a situation, a situation that occurs in 1446 B.C. On a particular day, Let's just say this is a day in, uh, in July. Okay, we'll say this is a day in July in 1446 B.C. We don't know what month it actually was, but we're just going to pick that month because they're up there for a while. He's been up there for at least 40 days, probably longer. They had uh, just left Egypt, which occurred in April, so it's conceivably sometime in the summer. And it's a specific point in time. Now, it seems that God has emotion. He is expressing anger. Now, I'm going to point out two problems that we have to be careful of. Now, there are a lot of people who will say, look, this is a clear example. It says God was angry. God's angry. God's expressing his wrath, right? Now, let's be very careful how we do this. First of all, the, the word there's not a word for anger in the Hebrew. There's not a word for anger in the Hebrew. The word that's in the Hebrew is af chara. That's a a p h c h a r a h. A p h. This word right here 
is the Hebrew word for nose. For nose. The verb kara, C-H-A-R-A-H, kara, is the word for burning. It doesn't say God was angry. It says God's nose burned. Wait a minute. Does God have a nose? No, God does not have a nose. So it's not a literal expression of God's anger, is it? It is a figurative term. So when when it speaks of God being angry, it's using an anthropomorphism. And an anthropomorphism, anthro meaning man, and morph meaning form, is where you use, where you attribute to God part of human anatomy that God does not actually possess in order to communicate something about God's plans, uh, policies, and purposes within a frame of reference that a human can understand. So right away, what we're talking about here when it talks about anger is it's using an anthropomorphism. Now, the other word that comes into play here is the word anthropopathism. Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars as to whether or not there are any legitimate anthropopathisms in Scripture. An anthropopathism, this word pathos, relates to emotion. And this is the idea that you attribute to God human emotion which he does not actually possess. That's the key phrase in both definitions, which he does not actually possess in order to communicate God's purposes, policies, and plans to man within a frame of reference man can understand. So as I got involved in a discussion with one individual over this a while back, he said there are no anthropopathisms. And he, he said, God is angry. That's a literal statement. I went back and I said, let's look at the Hebrew here for just a minute before we get too carried away. It's an, actually, it's an anthropomorphism. It's not a literal statement. So you have an anthropomorphism, and according to Bullinger's figures of speech in the Bible, which is the Bible on figures of speech, it's about three inches thick, unless figures of speech your English teacher never heard of, Anthropomorphism is actually a subcategory of anthropopathism. So what we're saying here simply is that when it talks about God's anger, it's using terminology about God that he doesn't actually possess. He doesn't possess a nose. So why do we have difficulty going to the next stage and saying he doesn't actually possess anger? Now, there's another problem here. That is a profound theological problem. This is why I pointed out that this event takes place in July of 1446, which is picking that month out of the out of the year. Now, did God know about this event, this idolatry, in April of 1446 when God delivered the Jews out of Egypt at the Exodus? Did God know that they were going to worship? Yeah, he did. Was he angry then? Well, if anger, if emotion is the consequence of a thought or a belief or, or something you know, then if God knew just as much about the, that rebellion three months earlier as he did when it actually occurred, why wouldn't he be angry about it three months earlier if it's an emotion? And what about in, let's say, April of 2000? 446. Did God know they were going to uh, build this idol and get involved in fertility worship at the base of Mount Sinai a thousand years earlier? Sure he did. Well, you know where I'm going with this. What about a billion years before did God know that Israel was going to disobey him and get involved in idolatry at the base of Mount Sinai a billion years before he created man? Sure he did. His knowledge, see, now we're bringing in other important attributes of God. We're talking about the fact that in God's omniscience, he knows all the knowable. He knows everything that can that, that will happen in human history. He knows everything that could happen in human history, the actual and the potential. 
His knowledge neither increases nor decreases. You can't add to God's knowledge or take away from God's knowledge. Therefore, if you attribute emotion to God in any sense like human emotion, then God's got to be learning something or or, or, uh, acquiring some new knowledge in order to generate this kind of emotion. That also affects the doctrine of immutability. And in the doctrine of immutability, we know that God doesn't change. His knowledge doesn't change, and his response doesn't change. So perhaps when we read passages that talk about the anger of God and the wrath of God and the jealousy of God, perhaps the author is using a figure of speech in order to communicate something to us. You know, we use the term wrath in a similar sense. We may talk about the fact that if you go to go to court and perhaps you have uh, committed some minor crime and you could have been sent to jail for 10 days or a fine or perhaps you could have been sent to jail for 60 days and for some reason the judge just decided that in your particular case he was going to make an example of you or perhaps you just got a, a judge that likes to use the full extent of punishment available to him, and instead of giving you a $500 fine, he says you're going to be fined, and let's say for the sake of the example, the highest possible fine could be $5,000 and 90 days in jail. We're going to fine you $5,000 and put you in jail for 90 days. Walk away from that and say, well, we just felt the full wrath of the court. But was the judge angry? We hope not. We don't want a judge who's emotional, do we? But when a judge lowers the boom, and there's a phrase, we, uh, an idiom we use, when he throws the book at us, another idiom, we say that we have experienced the full wrath of the court. However, the judge hopefully wasn't angry because his job is to remain objective and dispassionate and to provide an objective verdict and sentence based on law. So when we use these phrases even in our everyday life, we use them to express policies and procedures and the expression of justice. And that's what is going on when we find terms like the wrath of God. The wrath of God is applied to the tribulation period, and it is the judgment of God upon the nations. God is not suddenly getting angry and having a temper tantrum in heaven. Now, I think that Satan's going to have a temper tantrum during the tribulation, but God doesn't. God is simply expressing the full force of his justice and righteousness. So what we've seen here is that emotion is a response. Emotion is a visceral response that is uh, that's responding to certain thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes held in the mind. That when it comes to God, we know that God does not have a physical body, and the terminology often used in Scripture is terminology related to a physical body. We talked about uh, kill you the kidneys, spotting on the kidneys, as well as anger and heart. These are just some. There are many other physiologically based terms used to describe emotions. We've seen that this has a theological problem, that it affects the omniscience of God and immutability of God. And classic theologians used a certain term to express this, and this was known as the doctrine of the impassibility of God. Impassibility of God. And see, this word right here, P-A-S-S, comes from the Latin, which is the basis for our word passion. And the word passion means suffering or emotion. And it means that God in his very being cannot be affected by anything that happens at a creaturely level. He is not affected. There's no suffering. There's no change. And this has been taken to mean that God does not have emotion, that there is no emotion in God. Now, there are some that teach the doctrine of impassibility simply means that God has emotion, but it never changes and that these terms are not necessarily emotional terms, but then they want to, they in turn want to make emotion part of the human soul. And that's uh, 
why you have to go back and do your work, and before you can talk about human emotion and its location, you have to deal with who God is and where emotion is in God. Now, let's go back to our diagram of the soul. Emotion, then, is housed in the human body. When we talk about uh, emotions, we're talking about a physically-based response to what is perceived in the mentality of the soul. So the human, is, the human being is then made up, as we've said, of three parts, the physical body, the human soul, and the human spirit. So I want to look at the human soul because that is the core of the imageness. When man is said to be in the image of God, that relates to everything because the image is placed inside of a physical body. And that physical body is designed to be the highest and best possible expression of that image. And the image itself, the soul, is a finite replica and a finite representation of the infinite character of God and of divine essence. So we want to make some connections between these four elements of the of the human soul and God's character. To do this, we will go back to the essence box. Our ten characteristics of God. First of all, God is sovereign. I'm going to spread these over the overhead so we can use them a little later on to draw out some principles. God is sovereign. He's righteousness. He is just. He is love. And he is eternal life. There's no beginning. There's no end. God is also omniscient. He is omnipresent. And he is omnipotent. He is absolute truth, veracity. And he is immutable. Now, over this, we're going to talk about man. Man has four elements. He is he has uh, self-consciousness, volition, mentality, and a conscience. So let's look at this first attribute of God. God is sovereign. What does that mean, that God is sovereign? That means that God is that God is the ruler and the final authority in the creation. In other words, it relates to His will. He is the final determiner of history. It is His will, not the creature's will, that is the ultimate determiner in human history. So, the correspondence to that in man is volition. But the volition of man is not the same as the volition in God. Because God's volition is the volition of the Creator, and man's volition is the volition of the creature. And there's a tremendous debate, I'm sure you've heard of this, between sovereignty and free will. It's been going on for a number of centuries now. How do you relate the sovereignty of God to the free will of man? And one of the things that we have to deal with is the fact that free will implies real contingency in human history. But sovereignty guarantees that God's will always overrides and overrules and He brings about His plans and purposes in human history. So what what are we really talking about when we talk about will? We're talking about this little word here, causation. What is the ultimate cause in history? Now, one of the, there have been many attempts in, to try to understand and define the meaning of, of uh, causation, free will, and, and sovereignty, and you end up with, if you go too far in this direction, you really end up in determinism. 
And this is the problem with hyper-Calvinism, is no matter how much they talk about the fact that ultimately it is a loving, personal God that determines everything, you end up with no real choice and no real contingency in human history. You just have a God who ultimately determines it in everything, and choice is just an appearance or an illusion, but you, you really are making that decision you think you are. It's just sort of a psychological uh, appearance. It's not true. Now, one of the problems, let, let's look at a theological problem. If there's no contingency, then when Jesus came at the first advent and offered the kingdom to Israel, it's not a real offer. That means it's a hoax. Because Israel was determined by God from eternity past to reject that offer. Now you end up, that's, that plays into the hands of reformed and replacement theology because they have a very narrow look at the plan and purpose in, of God, uh, of Jesus Christ at the first advent. And if it's not a real offer and their negative volition was determined by eternity past, then that is consistent with a view of replacement theology and that Israel is now X'd out and they're out of the plan completely. But in dispensational thought, even though most dispensationalists came out of a Calvinistic heritage, they recognize legitimate contingency. And that's why there tends to be almost a schizophrenic attitude among dispensationalists on this whole issue of free will and sovereignty because they have to admit there is real, genuine contingency there in the plan of God and that if uh, Jesus' offer, that Jesus' offer was contingent and that there are greater purposes and plans in, for God, uh, that God has greater purposes and plans for mankind than simply salvation. See, this is a problem with Reformed theology. Remember, when we studied this years ago, and we studied dispensations and covenants, I said that the problem with Reformed theology is it limits, it limits the plan of God and the purposes of God in history to soteriology. But soteriology doesn't cover everything. Soteriology doesn't cover God's plan and purposes for the angels. It doesn't cover cover a number of other issues that take place in all all of created history. And in dispensationalism, the ultimate purpose for God, the ultimate purpose for history is to glorify God. It is a doxological purpose. So you have a certain consistency here where you have in, in dispensational thought real contingency in the offer of the kingdom to Israel, which indicates that they had the ability to choose or reject him, and this ultimately leads to the to be consistent with the dispensational multi-purpose plan of glorification of God that would include, of course, soteriology, but much more. Anyway, that's just an illustration to show that how these things work themselves out in many different areas of theology. The problem that you have in human history is this issue of understanding contingency. Now, in the ancient world, and the contingency goes back to the idea of causation. Let's pick up that thread. goes back to causation. Now, Aristotle... In his philosophy, and I'm not saying Aristotle was right, but I'm saying Aristotle certainly pointed out something that I think needs to be uh, attended to in, in, as we think about ultimate causation. Is it God? Is it man? Or can God in his greatness, can God in his greatness include different kinds of causation so that he is the ultimate cause, but he allows for real contingency and creaturely causation. See, Aristotle said that there were four kinds of causes. Four kinds of causes. The first kind of cause was material cause. So if you were going to build a house, the material cause would be the the construction materials. The lumber, the concrete, the the wires, the wood, all of that, the siding, all of that would be the material cause for the construction of the house. The second kind of causation would be the efficient cause, the efficient cause. 
And this would be the builder. The builder is the one who is causing the home to be constructed. So that's the efficient cause. Normally, when most people think about causation, that's the only kind of causation we think about, is direct, efficient causation. Uh, Aristotle had a third cause called the formal cause. The formal cause, and in the formal causation, the formal cause of a house being constructed would be the blueprint or the plan, the design. And then the final type of cause would be the final cause, the final or purpose cause, and this would be the purpose for which the house is being constructed or its end. So the, Aristotle probed the idea of causation, and he came up with four different kinds of causation. That's what we need to think about, is that there's different kinds of causation. I'm not saying Aristotle's right. I'm just saying he recognized at least that there were different kinds of causation. So that we need to make a distinction between the causation at the creator level and causation at the creaturely level. And what happens is that when we try to think through the whole idea of who ultimately causes what in the universe and that Jesus Christ controls history, well, that means he must cause things to come to pass. And how can he cause things to come to pass without uh, somehow forcing or manipulating man to do what he wants him to do? We're thinking in terms of causation at the creaturely level. And then we, we try to impose that upon God at the level of the creator. And what we have to realize is that there are different levels of causation so that God as the creator can override and overrule history without at the same time overriding and overruling creaturely decisions. And he can include a plan that is broad enough where it includes real contingency on the part of creatures and still produce what God knows the end result will be without God getting in and manipulating or forcing man to do what God wants him to do. So this is the, the way we will go as we look at the, the issues of free will, and we won't really break into that again until we get into the fall in the third chapter. So let's roll this, roll this back to the essence box. The sovereignty of God, which is the location of divine will, is corresponds to human volition. Corresponds to human volition. The righteousness of God, on the other hand, is God's standard of right and wrong, of absolutes, and God's justice is the application of that standard. And God's righteousness and His justice combine along with His veracity and His immutability. Veracity means God is absolute truth. That means he all, everything He does corresponds to absolute truth and reality. So righteousness and justice are then going to link up with His veracity and His immutability, and this relates over here to human conscience. Because the human conscience is where we store our norms and standards. And of course, before the fall, the only standards that Adam had were the absolute standards that provided for him by God, and these standards reflected God's absolute righteousness and justice. And conscience is one of those interesting things that always indicates, it always shows up somewhere. No matter how rebellious somebody is, it always shows up somewhere, and it always betrays the fact that they're, they're in the image of God. For example, right now there's this tremendous debate over whether or not the uh, uh, high court, the Supreme Court of Alabama, can have the 5,000-pound statue of, to the Ten Commandments in their atrium. And, of course, Judge Moore down there is fighting that tooth and nail because he recognizes an implicit principle here. And the enemies of, of the Ten Commandments and the enemies of, of God are saying that you can't have... You can't do that. Well, why not? Because it's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? 
Well, because it's wrong. Well, as soon as they say it's wrong and you can't do it, they're appealing to what? Some universal principle, some, ap- some universal standard of right and wrong. But if, there, if evolution is true, there is no ultimate standard. There is no absolute standard. And the very fact that they are saying that something is wrong is betraying the fact that they are a creature in the image of God that has a concept of right and wrong, even if their, con- their individual values are distorted. And so the fact that they're saying this is wrong betrays the fact that they've been created in the image of God with a conscience. And so the way they need to be uh, dealt with is in a very sophisticated way pointing out the fact that they really don't have any basis for saying it's wrong. And if you take away the Ten Commandments, then law suddenly becomes very fluid because law is ultimately grounded in absolutes. And in our culture, that law is is grounded in the absolute revelation of God through the Ten Commandments. And you can't come along and just make it arbitrary because then next week they're going to be wrong. And because as time goes by and as culture changes, first one group's in the ascendancy, then another group's in the ascendancy. You have to have a basis for absolute. So conscience relates to the absolute standards of God, and it always betrays that. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 2 when he shows that the very presence of a conscience shows that people have rejected God and know that God exists. Then third, we look at the idea of God's omniscience. I'm going to link God's omniscience, God's omniscience to his love. Omniscience is knowledge, and love is related to knowledge. We see that connection many times in Scripture, but love is also related up here. I've been wrestling with how we're going to connect this, where love goes. We know love isn't an emotion. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I may not feel like it. I may be drawn by my sin nature to do many different things that are not obedience to God's commandments, but if you love me, you keep my commandments. So love there means that you have to, first of all, know his commandments, and secondly, it involves volition. So love is not emotion. Love relates to knowledge, and it relates to an understanding of absolutes. But we're going to look at love as it relates to thinking, because it is a mentality. It is a mental attitude. So we're going to connect love and omniscience to mentality. Now, one thing I left out here, omnipotence. Omnipotence is defined in God as the ability to do whatever God wants to do. That's how you define omnipotence. It doesn't mean God can do anything. Why? Because there are certain things God can't do. God can't sin. God can't uh, uh, make a square, a triangle. You're always going to find people who come up with these idiot little notions. Omnipotence means God can do whatever God intends to do. He has the ability and the power. So that relates also to his will. So omnipotence and sovereignty link together in relationship to human volition. Righteousness, justice, veracity, and immutability are mirrored in the human conscience. And love and omniscience are linked up in God's, I mean, in man's mentality. Now, eternality is not part of man's makeup because man is finite. And it's the same as omnipresence. So there's nothing co- really corresponding to either of those in man uh, because man is localized and finite. So this is to show how the human soul relates to man. Now, of course, self-consciousness, the first element in the human soul, has to do with identity and a recognition of who we are. And God as well has has self-consciousness, he knows who he is. So in relationship to man as the image of God, we see that he is a finite replica of God's essence and character. It primarily relates to his immaterial makeup, but that immaterial makeup is necessarily housed in a body. The soul does not exist independently of a body ever. 
It's either in a physical body, it's in the interim body, or it's in a resurrection body. But there's always a body for the soul to express itself through, so it's all connected together. This gives significance and importance to the body. It gives equal significance and importance to the soul. And the soul is important because it it, it reflects and it mirrors God. Next time we... We'll come back and we'll continue our study starting in Genesis 2, verse 8, looking at the geography and the basic structure of the land uh, around Eden, and then we'll get into the ethical mandates, the righteous mandate of verse 16, where where man is given the prohibition against eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With that, we're going to start another subsection, probably a brief won't be as extended as this, probably one message, where we'll start laying the groundwork for understanding man as distinct from nature, where we'll start getting into environmentalism and how pantheism and environmentalism go hand in hand and how pantheism and environmentalism are historically the enemies of progress and technology and cultural development and advance, and it always comes down to some kind of religious presupposition. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time this evening to study your word, to come to a greater understanding of who we are as your creatures and how you have designed us to represent you to uh, the creation as and to be witnesses in the angelic conflict. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.